Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we're also joined by a very special guest, Alexis Kennedy, who is a co-founder of Fail Better Games. You might know them as the makers of one of our favorite games of last year, Sunless Sea. So welcome, Alexis. We're very excited to have you. Hello. Uh, so we also have a topic that is specific to Alexis. Uh, today we wanted to talk about writing really good, sort of good, compelling writing uh, in games, especially for non-specific characters. As, as you know, at Sunless Sea, you get to kind of make your own character, choose your own story, do all of that good stuff. So I, I imagine there are particular challenges with writing a character who is not sort of a set character with a set background. Very much. So uh, for years, I, I've been uh, using this rather florid metaphor for um, choice-based games writing, the fires in the, in the desert at night. And the idea is that when you actually write a scene in a game where players make choices to move between the scenes, it's like when the players enter the scene, they come into the firelight out of the desert night. And for the time they're there, you know exactly what they're doing. And um, they, they're having a conversation where you're in charge. But when they decide to go off and do something else, you, you don't know what they're doing out there in the darkness. That belongs entirely to them. So they can arrive at your scenes in any order, carrying any kind of freight that they picked up, being any kind of person. So it's a useful discipline being um, uh, forced to write for people who are coming into the scene with lots of different baggage, potentially. But also, of course, it can be really tricky. I think the trickiest example was in Sunless Sea, where we were um, in a step beyond four in London, where we um, uh, allow people to be of either gender or no gender. Yeah. Uh, we explicitly wrote everything in Summer Sea without assuming anything about the player's gender or responding to it. We just allowed people to choose a term of address, which could be sir or madam, but could also be captain or citizen or my lord or my lady or, or um, anything else they chose. And, and that was great. And then it got to writing the portion of the game where you actually have a child. So I'd found I'd written myself into a context where you had to have a child and it wasn't clear whether you were the mother or the father or you hadn't disclosed your gender at all. Yeah. And in the end, um, I, 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 I sort of wrote around this and had an adoption option, uh, but uh, catering for the different circumstances without ever referring to you as a mother or a father, was pretty challenging. And I think I would um, be less fluid in future games because it was just seriously heavy lifting. <laughs> How did you prepare for, for doing that? Did you do some kind of research? Did you talk to, folk, you know, maybe non-binary folks or folks, you know, uh, in different communities to kind of get ready for that, to kind of try to prepare for writing those kinds of characters? Well, the whole thing, the, the history of Fail Better's, um, engagement with um, non-binary or non-specific options, gender fluid options, was really a, an accident. Uh, this is back in 2009 mm -hmm. when all these issues were not on the cultural radar in the same way. And I'm called Alexis, which in um, European and American culture 
Western European and American culture tends to be a, a boy's a girl's name, sorry, a girl's name. And it so happens that my parents thought they were having a girl. <laughs> I turned out to be a boy, uh, and um, they picked the first name off the list of girls' names that also sounded good for a boy. So I spent uh, 16 years uh, suffering at school because of this. Oh, no. And, but I was used to people mistaking me uh, for being unambiguously female on the Internet, which was interesting in all kinds of ways. And so I got instinctively, although I, I sort of, you know, I, I had cheat mode effectively because <laughs> easier being a man than a woman on the Internet. And I could always <laughs> switch to being visibly a man at any point. But I understood instinctively by the time I built for London that sometimes people just didn't want to be bothered with the whole gender baggage thing. Sometimes they just wanted to say, it's none of your business, I'm, I'm, I'm just someone. Uh, and that's where we came in. And people really embraced that. I think we were the first game that did that. And uh, consequently, I ended up in a, a number of dialogues, uh, a number of discussions over years about why people, whether they identified in, in um, everyday life as gender fluid or whether they just wanted to step aside from the context of having a... Um, a broadly understood gender, uh, why people might want to do it. And also that brought up some uh, critiques of the way we dealt with gender in full London. So because it was this, this, you know, I cannot tell you how throwaway uh, the birth of this thing in full London was. <laughs> I did it in part to make a joke about squid uh, because the line famously is, um, my dear sir, there are people walking the streets of London with the faces of squid, squid, and you... Dare to ask me trifling questions about my gender is my own business. <laughs> I bid you good day. And, um, but so we did that. And then straight away, we, we put people into, um, a, a character selection screen where you get to, to choose. If you've chosen male, you choose a bunch of, sort of male identifying looking, um, uh, profile silhouettes. And if you've chosen female, uh, you choose a bunch of, of uh, silhouettes which look sort of female coded. And if you've chosen neither, Paul, my co-founder in the art director, now the CEO, did a number of, he, he really struggled to find silhouettes that didn't look obviously either male or female. A lot of them ended up being uh, people with tentacles, people like zombies, <laughs> uh, which some of our non-binary defined players uh, weren't impressed by. So for Thunder uh, Sea, and I believe this, this is what, what um, there is now the case in Fall in London too, you choose a gender, and then you get a bunch of, of uh, relevantly coded uh, looking profiles sort of suggested to you. But if you want to choose uh, a, a silhouette that codes differently, then you can do that. And that's not a problem. So we, 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 we learned as we went. And still, this is uh, complex territory. So, for example, in, in Sun of the Sea, there's a, um, a character who every time I refer to them, I say he or is it her, uh, he, he or is it she, mm -hmm. uh, or her or is it him. And um, we got a letter of complaint from that from somebody who identified as non-binary and thought this was um, overly cumbersome or drawing attention to the fact. And as it happened, uh, the character in question was a Kickstarter backer um, character this is one of the Kickstarter bed rewards you did. And the person who asked us to, to put the character in the game identified as non-binary online and asked us to make the character non-binary and was happy with my treatment and actually wrote in to miss out, to, to point out a couple of places where I hadn't been consistent with it. Uh, so, uh, 
you know, all of us are, are finding our way through this. And I think um, there is a software development adage, Postel's Law, which says the liberal in what you accept and conservative in what you produce. I think that's the rule is to be careful, but also to be tolerant, whichever um, side of the developer player divide you're on. So I think something I find particularly like fascinating about this, this approach is that in general, when I talk about like my preferences for narrative driven games, I actually want things to be very specific. Uh, this is, I think, one reason why on the show we, we tend to be a little bit obsessed with The Witcher and why I'm sort of <laughs> obsessed with The Witcher is that, like, <laughs> Geralt is a very set character and you can sort of tweak what that character does and, and represents, but nevertheless, like, he's kind of his own thing and you can only project so much on him because uh, everything about Geralt is is kind of set in stone and it's not really under your control and that also means you can like create a game where Geralt has uh, very like specific or unique relationships uh, to him and in general I've always thought like well that's kind of the the only way to do it right because if you're if you're writing around all this missing information about a character, it would seem like you'd have to deal with like vague generalities that you could never tell anything personal about a character where you don't sort of control uh, all this backstory, all these things about this character. And what I found interesting about Fallen London and Sunless Sea to an extent is that the stories often do still feel personal and unique and like, you know, they are mine and, and not in a, it doesn't feel like I'm reading sentences with a fill in the blank where the blank is still blank, where it's <laughs> sort of writing around all these gaps. Uh, and, and I'm sort of like curious how you, you overcome that, right? You, Cause you can't make these, these statements, these definitive statements about like, uh, what your, what your characters, what your player characters have been through or what they're bringing to the table. Uh, and yet it doesn't feel like, uh, the world is lacking in character or, or, or depth or detail. So I think there's, there's a, a, you, you're, you're absolutely right about the problems of, um, a story feeling personal when it has, there's an acronym I can never remember that's very common in interactive fiction circles for a, a sort of, uh, genderless, non-specific amnesiac. Uh, person with no particular <laughs> character. Uh, it's hard to tell a personal story then. But one of the things that good art does, and I'm using art in the not having an internet argument about the game your art sense, the sense of general creative endeavor. What good art does is it appeals to, um, human universals or near universals. So not many things are, um, are really, uh, universal. I was watching Kobo. Um, Kubo, Kubo and the Three Strings of My Kid yesterday and mm-hmm. um, uh, there is without spoilers a pretty substantial plot line about eyes and the role they occupy in human identity and consciousness and of course not everybody has functioning eyes but I don't think that you know it, it is still a very common human trait to have eyes and if you make people think about that um then, then they'll have a, a personal reaction to it. The same thing, you know, Cuba also, um, deals with, um, uh, 
parentage and family. And not everybody has a mother or a father, uh, but it's a very common thing. Such things I can identify with. And if be, even people don't, it's such a common part of the human experience that uh, it speaks to something personal. So in Sunless Sea, for example, the, the kind of core quest is seeking your father's bones. And so this is this is quite personal because my father actually died at sea when I was quite young. But um, ev- everybody understands death. Everybody annoyingly dies. And everybody understands something about what it is to have somebody in your life who you lose or what a relationship between a child's, um, a child and a parent is. So when you address those, those universal things and those, those common themes, that's a way into building things that feel personal. And basically, um, my, my other half actually sort of poked me in the ribs a few months ago and said, AK is everything you write about death. And I said, well, actually kind of yes. And if you look at Ford London, if you look at Sunday, if you look at basically everything I've done, that's, that's the theme. And that's pretty universal. I remember somebody once saying, you've got to dis- describe, dis- decide which drum you beat in, in fiction. It's either sex or it's death. And the thing about death <laughs> is that not everybody has sex. Everybody does die. Uh, speaking of that, uh, is it okay to talk about your, your current gig? Your, your Sorry. new. Awesome. So yeah, speaking of sex and death, <laughs> it sounds like you are now working at BioWare. Uh, uh one of the, the first, tell us a little bit about that, how, how that came to be and how you're. So not, not yeah. now, not, not quite yet, but. Okay. But soon. okay. So, uh, <laughs> the, what I wanted to do when I left Alberta was, was my own work and freelance work. Uh, because I, like, the whole point of kind of taking time out from uh, running a studio, I expect I'll found a studio in another year or two because, you know, I have the bug, was to work on a variety of projects and learn as much as I can. And how much experimentation I do, uh, and even if, you know, all the games I make are successful, which I can't count on, then uh, working on my own with a small number of people I've hired in is not going to be the same as working with other studios of completely different philosophies. Also, Jesus, Bioware, you know, <laughs> Bioware. And we have worked with them before. I have worked with them before and had a, a, a very good experience. But yeah, the, um, because I've worked with them before, because I know Felbetta has fans in Bioware, just as Bioware has fans in Felbetta. Um, Mike Laidlaw, uh, from Bioware literally messaged me on the day he found us going freelance and said, can we, uh, get you to using guest writing? And, and I, I believe I replied, fuck yes, please sign me up. <laughs> uh, and then it took some months to, to work out the wrinkles because big companies. But yeah, in, um, January, uh, I will be Bioware's first ever guest writer in 20 years, which is 20% terrifying and 80% great. Can you, like, what are you going to be, like, do you know what you're working on? Do you know which universe do, you're going to be playing around um, in? And you know the drill. I, I yeah. can't say it, but I think, I think people, probably have enough material to do some detective work. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, I'm, like, I'm fascinated about that because, like, from the outside, Fail Better seemed like the dream. And not just Fail Better, but, like, you'd had this hand in creating this entire universe, right? Like, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, Fallen London became, like, the only browser game that I've ever really gotten into, and then I lost a delightful long winter to sunless sea uh <laughs> is because it was this wonderfully evocative 
uh, playground. Um, and I think it's easy for those of, on the, those of us on the outside of an experience to look at it and say, like, well, that seems amazing. Like, why would you ever leave? But like, as, as, as someone who's, who's, who's done a bit of writing, you know, himself and, and, you know, knows how tough it can be to sort of build a stable, uh, career, uh, in, in this field. Like, I, I guess I'm curious, like, what the motivation is for walking away from a beloved, successful creation, uh, that you've got so much of yourself invested in. Uh, it, it's a very good question, uh, and uh, with a very straightforward answer, which is that the reason I got into the business and left a, a comfortable career uh, in software development in the first place uh, was that I wanted to write and make games. And um, fell better by the time I left with 16 people and uh, three, four projects, depending on which way you slice it. And... Um, Running a team, making sure everything stays on track, takes a lot of time. And this is especially true when it's the first business you've built, as far better was, mm-hmm. and it grew organically. So we didn't realize until I left. Um, I, I'm told that this was the first board meeting after I left, people were putting around going, oh, my God, he's, he's uh, or the first meeting with the accountants, I think. We didn't actually realize that Alexis did all, all these things. And I, I hadn't... Um, been any better than the average person at delegating things. It's always hard to do when you're a, a hands-on person and when you're both CEO and creative director. So, you know, that, that was one side of it. Was I, I was doing all this um, work, which is fulfilling and exciting in lots of ways, but it wasn't what I really wanted to do with my life, uh, which was focus on innovative, interesting stuff, the overlap of... Um, uh, narrative work and design work. And there was just no way it was ever going to happen. And I could have, uh, fired everyone and sort of said, now we're going to pursue my new creative destiny. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, that wouldn't have been a, a, something I'd have felt comfortable doing. And, um, Fail Better makes a particular kind of game. And those games, I think, are very good. I'm, you know, I'm biased. But it is a particular kind of game. And I want to do different kinds of things because you don't learn by doing the same thing year in, year out. And being the same job for seven years is actually quite a long time. Yeah. Choosing a, a change after that is, 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 is not crazy. So those are all the reasons that I, I left. And of course, it's alarming. Um, going from a, a, a role where you're probably going to be the last person to turn off the lights and put the chairs on the table if the company starts going downhill, you know, the one person whose job's safe to having no job. But, um, you know, I made enough money from setting my stake and fell better to, to last me a while. But more also, I think, the very fact that I was prepared to work, walk away, um, having uh, the credibility of having built a company uh, and run a writing team and built a world like for London meant that uh, people took me, you know, there are many people in, in the, the writing biz with that particular set of credentials. There are a lot of people who are better at other things. You know, if I were Naughty Dog, I wouldn't hire me to write um, high-quality uh, cinematic linear fiction. It's just not something I'm particularly good at. But for the particular kind of thing I, I, I do, uh, I built up some credibility over the years. But I won't lie, it was um, frightening uh, and heart-wrenching uh, to walk away, 
On the other hand, I did it once before, so I feel much more confident that I know a lot more about founding and running a studio and I'll, I'll do it better next time. Do you miss, uh, I'm sure you miss the people you're working with and, and such, but, uh, but I'm curious to, to what degree, like, do, do you mourn not working in the universe of fallen London anymore? Right. Or is it a relief yes. to not have to be uh, sort of a, a modern absurdist take on uh, Victorian uh, goth lit. Uh, like, to, like, is there a mix of those emotions? You know, it's like sending your child off to school for the first time. Uh, or I guess it's more like your kid getting married. Uh, so suddenly, uh, fallen London, uh, I have no influence over the direction of, uh, at all now. Unless they get Chris Gardner, the new narrative director, uh, drunk and whispering in his ear. Uh, it's explicitly not my thing. And that feels very strange. And I, I did a sort of mini AMA on some work I've been doing for Paradox and Stellaris the other day on Reddit. And somebody asked me a, a, a daft law mashup question about what would happen if the Bazaar and the Masters were encountered by an empire in Stellaris. So I wrote an answer. I said, well, you know, this is explicitly fan fiction. Um, I'm now writing uh, for London fan fiction. So that's, that's <laughs> a, a weird and slightly desolate feeling. But on the other hand... I have spent um, seven years mostly writing fiction in a world where I have to find um, a different way every month of describing how light looks on dark water <laughs> or finding uh, a metaphor for lamplight that doesn't um, rely on jewels or coals or, or the word glimmer. Uh, and being able to, to stretch it is a, a tremendous relief. And the it's not a coincidence that the... Um, uh, the larger project I'm, I'm working on now in my off hours is actually called Moon, uh, and is explicitly set in bright sunlight because I wanted to go in as far the opposite direction as I could. <laughs> uh, speaking of fan fiction, it's something I'm always really curious to hear about when, when I talk to creators and writers, especially, uh, anybody who works in genre fiction at all, which is pretty much anybody in video games, but also, you know, obviously uh, different types of TV and movies, but, how do you navigate the relationship uh, sort of between fans and, and, and you know, the entitlement sometimes that fans might have about, you know, your projects and about your world and things like that? How do you navigate that, you know, in a way that is, is positive for everyone, but also, you know, clearly leaves you in the, in the, in the driver's seat? Yeah, so there was a sigh that I just gave that I don't know if the mic picked up, but it's basically a sigh that you'll hear from anybody who's worked on a, a kind of genre IP, uh, with a fandom. Uh, even, you know, a relatively small one is as far bad as this. And that sigh says, uh, some of them are great and very few of them are bad people. I'll go further. Actually, many of them are great and very few of them are bad people. And I think the, uh, the, the, the emotional journey you go on is, first of all, learning to turn the hell off um, and realizing that you do not have to reply to everything that uh, everybody says on the Internet. And it took me too long to learn that. I made some foolish mistakes um, where I engaged with people uh, who who weren't talking in a context where they expected uh, the guy who's worked there talking about to come and engage. It's kind of unfair of me to do that. Because the internet has, has funny rules about what's public and what's not. So, you know, time was, um, a, a, a couple of friends taught me to, uh, 
to learn to disengage. And once you do that, you realize that if somebody says something um, entitled or aggressive about your work, it's very rare that they mean that as a literally true thing. Often what it is, it's an emotional reaction uh, because the uh, they're upset about something because they love something. And as soon as you take that mental step, everything starts to make sense. And then some people are, are just dicks anyway. If, if, if people <laughs> send um, personal insults, uh, just like death threats, um, to an email address. I don't think you ever got any death threats, but obviously people do. Uh, then, you know, that, that's just uncivilized behavior and, and, and you need to take whatever measures you can. But people said all kinds of things about Fall in London over the years, uh, that I'm sure they wouldn't have if they'd run into me in the pub, but they were, they were having an emotional reaction on the internet, which is the, uh, an echo chamber for, uh, amplifying mechanism for emotional reactions. And, um, on the flip side of that, you are absolutely aware as an indie developer that you owe a tremendous amount to your community. And, uh, you know, Sun Sea happened because uh, Fall in London um, never quite made enough to pay the bills in the old days. And we crowdfunded it. And we had never quite made enough money to pay the bills in for London, but we had built up a, a very loyal community uh, who we treated pretty well and had treated us pretty well. Uh, and because of them, the company continues to exist and 16 people are doing jobs that they love they wouldn't have done otherwise now you know it's not a one-way street those people have got entertainment they love in in, in return and, and we had emails i had a, a, a response the other day uh, on reddit from people who've actually got through dark places of their lives playing our game but at the same time uh, uh the community is, is is everything you're making games for people you're not talking to yourself and the fact that a small number of people occasionally kick off as against the overwhelming enthusiasm and positivity even sometimes nuance of, of the rest of the um of the community if, if you if you focus on realizing it's all an emotional reaction then that helps a lot that sounds very wise that also seems like a skill that will be you know ever ever helpful <laughs> especially maybe at bioware <laughs> yeah I, I, so I, I, I just speak off the cuff. I think Bioware gets an unbelievably unfair amount of flack. I don't think every game Bioware has ever made has been great. I don't think Bioware have ever made a bad game. I mean, maybe, um, uh, Pre-Baldur's Gate, I, I don't, didn't play, uh, their stuff, but they'll be making games that vary from very good to extraordinary for almost 20 years. Yeah. Never to make 20 years of that, and never to make a bad game in all that time is a hell of a batting record. <laughs> and they obviously care about what they do. And they have, we were talking about diversity a few minutes ago, yeah. gone above and beyond on that stuff. They, they've been well in advance of, of every other, not every other, they've been well in advance of most other AAA developers. And the problem with doing that is nobody gets um, attention on the internet by saying Hitler was a bad person. Um, right. <laughs> or, uh, 
you know, uh, Activision, uh, uh, a soulless, um, uh, vultures, a, a view which I do not endorse, but you know, it's, it's, it's not the one that you do. What you do is you, if you say Bioware, who normally do great narrative work, um, and who are very good at dealing with issues of uh, diversity and uh, progressive politics have failed in this one respect. Therefore, they're total losers and everyone should hate them and the Mass Effect <laughs> the end was the worst thing ever. That gets yeah. attention. So, you know, if a, uh, if a, another company had fallen short in some of the ways that Barbara is a case in the fallen short, all had done things that I don't think fell short that people disagree with, they wouldn't have got the kind of shit that Bioware has. But because Bioware are Bioware, they get that shit. Yeah. Do you think part of that is also because people have people have personal relationships with a lot of Bioware franchises and characters in those universes that like like does it hurt more when when it, does it feel more personal when when Bioware missed the mark a little bit right like if you've been like if you're super invested in Dragon Age and a new Dragon Age comes out and it doesn't quite land for you and it doesn't pay off the, in the ways you were hoping mm-hmm. like do you think that do you think that accounts for some of it that like it it it, it bothers you more because like it's not just a it's not just a bad game it's or or and that's just a disappointing game it's the realization that like something that you're really invested in will never get the denouement that you feel was worthy of it. I uh, absolutely. So what's um, uh, Bioware uh, games tend to do, and what a lot of other um, uh, high-end uh, CRPGs tend to do, um, you know, Skyrim famously, for example, they give you a place to inhabit. Uh, for a while, uh, and it's really a sort of all-enveloping experience, and you uh, you feel like you have some sort of um, uh, uh, familiar context there that you return to. And I think you know Bioware more than um, the other uh, big, great uh, CRPG companies, Bethesda, uh, Obsidian, um, and CD Projekt Red, all spring to mind. Um, they tend, I think CD Projekt Red also focuses on, on character, I guess. Uh, but, but both of them, but Byron in particular is always, uh, as far back as Boo and Mint, uh, uh, had people who are delighted by the characters and feel they have some sort of relationship with the characters in the space in which they exist. I think the other thing that Bioware has been prone to do is provide homes for people. So the Normandy in Mass Effect, um, or the, the various um, residences you get in Dragon Age games. Uh, those are places you go back to. So when it ends, uh, you do feel a sense of grief. And I think um, one of the reasons um, people reacted to the ending of Mass Effect 3 the way they did is that uh, whether you liked the way the ends were tied up or not, the ends were tied up. Mm. I think always going to be disappointed, whatever happened. So I think there's that. And I think the other thing with, with Bioware and with nerd culture in general, and I, you know, use the term non-pejoratively, I'm an enthusiastic nerd. <laughs> I saw somebody say on Twitter the other day, uh, something that's really smart and, and I, I wish I could remember who it was. It's that you're not looking for, um, more Star Wars and Batman material. You're looking for material that makes you feel the way you did when you first came across Star Wars or Batman. 
And I think a lot of people um, are not looking for uh, necessarily the next game in a particular franchise. They're looking for the way the first game in that franchise made them feel. And you can't. You've moved on. You're five years, 10 years, 20 years older. Your experience is going to be different. Even if it's just as good, even if it's better, it's always going to be a little disappointing. And people, humans are are not generally good at realizing how much they've changed because, you know, the world (laughs) changes. You're your constant point. So people always think of a disappointment. I think the more of a personal connection you have with the franchise, the more likely you are to be disappointed by it. And then, of course, some giant multimedia conglomerates just um, systematically uh, rake the ground up from over the corpses of the um, uh, franchises and, and process them repeatedly. But that's a different point. <laughs> yeah, I think the the idea that nerds are always kind of chasing the dragon is very, it's very pertinent and it, and it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I kind of like that as a metaphor as well. It's it's weird. I, I go back and forth on this. Like a lot of times on, on Three Moves Ahead, we joke that like, a lot of times players are kind of bad judges of, of what they really want. Uh, right. Because if you like ask people what they want added to a, like a, uh, strategy game series, a lot of times what you get is a laundry list of ideas that would like radically alter the game in ways that would basically turn into something very different and possibly very bloated and, and awful. Um, on the other hand though, like, I don't know. I sometimes worry it's a little too easy to retreat into a sort of certainty that, um, oh, the, you know, the, the the players just aren't really in touch with, uh, like players aren't just aren't aren't in touch with what they really want, right? Like they they, they think they want they they think they want X and and they didn't get it and they're angry, but but really they they don't understand where that desire is coming from. Like to an extent, yeah, people do chase what they first got out of star Wars and Batman or what they first got out of uh mass effect or, or dragon age. Uh, but to, in, in a different way, in a different way though, sometimes it feels like the trick doesn't evolve with the audience. You know what I mean? Like I, I do. Uh, and I think um, one of the, Adages, which was very popular at Fail Better, was a quote I've heard attributed to a bunch of people, uh, Neil Gaiman, I think, among others, which is that your audience um, knows if something is wrong. They just don't know how to fix it. <laughs> and that's the thing. There's no point saying to your audience, actually, I've given you diamonds. <laughs> uh, you, you, know, you just think it's land oysters. Uh, but you, but if your audience then, then tells you what you need to do in order to fix it, the chances are they're wrong yeah. because, uh, you know, they, they are basically employing you as a, a game maker or a writer um, to give them something they can't make themselves. Otherwise, they'd be making it themselves. So uh, learning to uh, tease out people's reactions to people's recommendations and training people to give actions rather recommendations is a big part of game dev, especially the kind of open production community um inflected game dev that we did at, at fail better and some of you know it, we would uh sometimes people would ask for things that we simply couldn't give them and we'd have to explain every six months why we couldn't provide those things 
um, like four in London, you know, it, it, it just isn't practical to package four in London up into a um, play once um, uh, mobile game where you never have to wait for an action. Even if it was practical to do it, it wouldn't be economically worth doing it. And even if it were, then it um, would spoil the pacing of the game. But and after a while, you know, we taught the community to tell other members of the community that and they, they understood how to explain it. On the other hand, there are a bunch of changes he made to foreign London over the years, um, uh, like the way the exceptional friendship worked, that were directly based on community input because people weren't necessarily sure how things could be improved and they could be improved. And we listened to them, the game got better. So I think absolutely that the, the, it's up to people to decide whether or not to support a creative vision or not. And at times you simply have to say, well, it's, it's, it's my ship. Um, and I say there's no iceberg there. I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> You don't want to steer a ship by um, by democratic acclaim, but at the same time, if somebody's on the on the mast saying, "I can definitely see something out there in the darkness," <laughs> then you want to listen to what they're saying. As against all that, I think the the quality of discourse around understanding of game design has improved enormously uh, over the uh, over the last ten twenty years. Uh, and a lot of players are really smart and a lot of them are, are pretty good at a sort of intelligent amateur criticism. I mean, amateur in the unpaid sense, not in the um, mm-hmm. derogatory sense. Yeah. So Steam communities, a lot of Steam communities are obviously pits of screaming eyes um, <laughs> from which the pin is the damned should never escape. But if you compare a Steam, the average Steam early access community now to any thread on any World of Warcraft forum, last decade it's it's a much healthier place to be and and often you get really smart commentary and i'm particularly aware of this having spent a few weeks working on the paradox property i've got 75 hours in stellaris which i've been working on which i'm very fond of it and i know it quite well but i i dip into the um uh the stellaris forums uh and and jesus christ those guys they, they you know there's no every detail uh and they care passionately and um, the kind of person who, who who mods a paradox game is is the kind of person who, if I were an account, if they were an accountant, I would absolutely trust to do my my tax returns. <laughs> a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Stellaris, uh, how is that? Like, talk to me about the differences between that sort of writing and and quest creation as opposed to stuff like Sunless Sea, uh, like Fallen London, because Stellaris, Stellaris is a huge game, and no matter what you do, narrative is always going to be an occasional port of call, right? In, in the midst of a, a much wider ocean of experience. Um, tell me about, like, the challenge of creating a sense that there is, like, life and backstory to this universe. Because I remember when we first talked about the game, uh, it was weird. Like, the, the panel sort of split down the middle and threw us ahead about uh, some of us felt like it was just kind of another kind of dull, s- sterile, uh, vague 4X sci-fi universe. And others had had this really engaging, uh, like, classic sci-fi experience where they're playing strategy game, and then they were also uh, telling them these, like, Babylon 5 or Deep Space Nine-esque mm. uh, stories about, like, clashes between space empires. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, you know, where your role as a writer fits into that sort of game versus your experience working on stuff like uh, the, in the Fallen London universe. Yeah, 
So my, my role as a writer is, is, um, it's pretty humble in that respect. Um, and I'll talk about that. But first, I want to address the macro point you, you made. And I think you ever heard of a company called Punch Drunk? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, did, they did this, this uh, show called, called Steep No More in the States. They've done more shows in the UK. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the, the big, rich, incredibly complex, immersive theatrical experiences, whether a set dress, a, a warehouse or an art center, and you'll, you'll walk around it for hours interacting with people in costume and, uh, and being terrified and amazed. And I've been to two punch drunk shows. And the first one, uh, was the highlight of that year of my life. And the second one was quite boring. And I think the, the, the problem with the second one was, was in no way, um, uh, was it a worse show? I just happened to be unlucky. I was just always leaving a room, um, as interesting things started entering a room as, as they ended. When you've got something quite emergent and um, uh, when, when you've got lots of things going on, and in, in Stellaris, they know it's possible for other empires to discover um, events and, and have, make the events happen before you do, which is, is I think, something they're changing in these subsequent patches. It's quite easy for two people to have very different experiences uh, on the same matrix. Now, that's not a reason to give up and just say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's, that's game design, David. Uh, it's a reason to double down the narrative design and make it work better and think about how people interact with it. Uh, and I think that's something the paradox are doing now. But I think, you know, that their, their history of post-launch support means that they do listen very hard to what people are saying. And I think they're uh, aware of that issue. And it was an issue for a lot of people. It happened not to be for me, obviously, I happened to love it. So that, that macro thing, that, that arranging, uh, when and how events happen, um, while still leaving it fluid enough for the events to happen in, in ways that feel driven by player choice and random chance is a, a tricky and difficult mix that is also one of the things that interests me most about game design, one of the things I, I want to work on. But it's not something I worked on in Paradox because it was just a, um, a short guest writing gig. So for Paradox, what I, I did was I said, so, you know, can you tell me about the, is there any law I need to respect? Um, and they kept saying, no, it's, it's cool. Just, you know, put what you like in there. Um, uh, one, we trust you. And two, it's pretty broad. The, 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 the law is the universe is wide and full of wonders. <laughs> and, and in the end, then I just did, um, I, I've described it as event horizon meets the twilight zone. It's a sort of a, <laughs> a novelette sized chunk of narrative in which you can, um, do things you'll later regret and, uh, uh, hand it over and it will, will, will go out, uh, at some point. But it was very useful, I think, for me, uh, because uh, obviously I'm a, uh, uh, a tremendously humble person, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a person at all. Uh, I, I spent seven years running a company um, and being in an environment where I was a writer running a game dev operation where nobody could really say no to me. So it's very <laughs> useful um, for my first freelance gig to be a um, a context in which um, I'm just working on one small part of a big tapestry while I'm doing something strategic. Okay, I think we uh, I think we should probably probably leave it there. I could I could literally talk about Fallen London uh, and just start asking questions about the lore. Like I've always loved the um, the Postman's Island uh, to to an absurd degree. Um, well, I'm going to tell you about that because there is a a, a whole backstory there which I'll give <laughs> very briefly. Um, the uh, the backstory is simply this: um, 
one of our more lunatic um, and um, impossible community members, for reasons of his own, um, took to sending me uh, my test character thousands and thousands of rats on a string to the in-game postal system. <laughs> and um, this became a kind of a running gag in the community, uh, especially after I, I um, dumped 10,000 on him back at once in the middle of a major festival. Um, and um, when a one of our um, wealthier supervans um, bought a bunch of Kickstarter awards in Summer Sea, he gave these away to other players, uh, which is a lovely example of community spirit. And this lunatic, impossible fan, Keelan, um, uh, accepted the burden of all of these and asked for an island to be themed around rats and postmen. And we took it absolutely seriously. And we gave the responsibility of writing it to Emily Short, who has a pretty oh. good claim the, yes. the finest living interactive fiction writer. Um, sorry, the other top four. Uh, and, um, under the six. And the, um, uh, and she took it absolutely seriously and made, you know, this, this, um, island of drowned pathos and baffled desire. Uh, and the epilogue to this is that the lunatic impossible fan, um, Heike Lin, um, we subsequently brought him for an internship at Fail Better and hired <laughs> around the time that I left because he, he, um, is lunatic and impossible, but knows the law like nobody else and is, is smart as a whip. Oh, that's a feel good story right there. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Be a super fan in a smart way. If you're going to be a super fan, I think that's the, Amazing <laughs> lesson right there. All right. So I think with that, it's time for us to move on to our weekend correspondence. Uh, first, a word from our sponsor. Danielle, if you know me, you know I'm passionate about footwear. Do I ever. I just got some really great hiking shoes and took them up to Blue Hills Reservation the other day and was tackling trails that were way beyond me the last time I was back in Boston. But you know what really elevated the experience uh, from the merely fun to what I can only describe as sublime? Was it your sock? It was! It was! You know, we, we put time and thought into picking out shoes, but... But then we half-ass our sock selection and just get whatever is cheap at the mall. You know, like I spent years just wearing just basically cotton pieces of garbage. It can be so much better than that. And a good place to learn just how much better it can get is at getbombas.com slash weekend. Bombas offers a great selection of socks in different styles, colors, and patterns. But more than that, Danielle, it's, it's the little details. The reinforced footbed so you can shrug off those hard miles climbing hills or running city streets, as I know you do. Or the Invisito, which gives you a good, close fit without that obnoxious seam running across the front of your big toe. Do you ever obsess over that, by the way? Like, you, you ever, like, you, once you find it with your toe, like, can you ever stop flicking it with your toenail? Because, like, that's that's my Achilles heels, the uh, an obnoxiously punny way to put it, but, like... Man, if like that's if that's how the, the 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 shoe fits over the sock and that seam is right there, like I just worry about it like the entire okay. day until I lose my mind. I, I do that and they pick away at it and then it like destroys the sock. But then you keep wearing it because you don't really replace your sock because you're an idiot and you haven't gone to getbombas.com slash weekend. Uh, <sighs> so you just keep wearing the sock with the hole in it and it's strangling your toe and oh, it's just terrible. Don't don't let that happen to you. 
And you know, there's a reason to feel good about it too. Not just your, you know, your feet feeling good, but you can feel good because every time you buy a pair of socks from Bombas, they donate a specially crafted, high durability pair to a homeless shelter. So not only are you doing your feet a solid, you're doing somebody else's feet a solid as well. So go to getbombas.com/weekend for 20% off your first order and get the perfect socks for your feet and your friends' feet. And our first letter comes from Andy from Umea, Sweden. I might have mispronounced that. I apologize to our Swedish fans. Hi, R&D. A couple of episodes ago, you discussed games that dug deep into your OCD side. And for what I gathered, you weren't sure if you walked away from those games feeling good, even though the systems were fun and addictive at first. I've got exactly the same problem when it comes to those kinds of games. Whether it's the addictive system of fusing demons in the Shin Megami Tensei games or the experience, uh, the experience systems in the new Fire Emblem games, I can get crazy involved in these games and in the end feel pretty bad when I suddenly realize I've spent three hours grinding demons in Shin Megami Tensei 5 or two hours replaying the same mission in Fire Emblem Fates to maximize the progression of my characters. Lately, when I started playing Valkyria Chronicles and came to the screen where you get to choose your battalion, uh, we were presented with a list of 30 or so characters, and some work well with others, but not with some, and everybody has some special ability. I just said, screw it, and know where this hole goes. Do you think that the responsibility lies with the developers for making these kinds of systems, or with the player for exposing themselves to them, knowing full well the grief if they indulge in them? Andy from Umea, Sweden. I am fascinated by this question of sort of where the guilt lies when you create something addictive um, <laughs> in in the context of games. And I've always sort of been more wary of, you know, the sort of play to win or, or whatever, free to win, free to play kind of things that happen in a lot of mobile games. But I, I also wonder if that's just sort of a general gamer distaste for that kind of game as opposed to you know, a, a quote unquote, you know, a paid video game that is addictive because it's supposed to be addictive and you're supposed to have fun. You're supposed to be there and happy and, and enjoying yourself with it. Like how much is it an addictive proposition versus like a, a piece of entertainment that you value and you feel good about? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of struggle with this one. I mean, I kind of feel like it's one thing to create a really complicated system that people can get lost optimizing uh, in some ways. Like I think it's another to create something that's continually deferring the real reward and is instead trading in incremental progress toward that award. If that, if that makes sense. Like, it does. It, like, yeah. for me, optimizing an RPG party or like playing with your inventory and everything, a lot of games, you don't actually have to do that. If, if you want to sidestep that, you can sort of brute force it. You can, uh, maybe, maybe okay, maybe you do grind your characters a little bit to overlevel them, or you just have your sort of go-to party and you sort of force your way through. Uh, you might not be playing optimally, but you can still make progress. Uh, you also have the option of optimizing and playing that uh, that game very differently. Uh, same with sports games. You know, you could just play, you know, it's it's football season, you could just play Madden, uh, or you could 
put on your general manager cap and create your own team and build your own franchise and obsess over all sorts of stats and contracts and such. There's, I don't see a problem there. Where I start to really worry is where the player isn't indulging in these systems because they just enjoy playing with those systems and tweaking those values and getting the most out of it. But it is instead all in the service of, well, if you just play with the system a little more, trust me, something good is just over the horizon. But but first, you need to spend a little more time, you know, shifting these values around, and then you're going to get, well, maybe you won't get the thing, but you get a step closer to the thing, and you'll have some more numbers to push around. And that, that worries me, but I think, I think it's a, it depends both on the game, but at the same time, I think it also depends on the player. Like, you know, I think we kind of have to be mindful about everything, and... I think it's it's always worth asking yourself why you're why you're stuck on something. Will this be a detriment to my life? Yeah, I always ask that before. I think, <laughs> always I think, ask that before playing. <laughs> I think that the so for me, uh, I, I want to say games don't kill people; people kill people. I think how if you make a, a reasonably good game, somebody will find it addictive. But that doesn't mean that any design behavior, no matter how abusive, is appropriate. I think that if you are making a very addictive game that adds value to somebody's life, I mean, FTL springs to mind. I've some God knows how many hours into FTL. Um, but frustrating though it is, I do feel that it's, it's been interesting experience every time. Um, but if it's a, a, a sort of um, empty calories Skinner box, then uh, you, you want to take a look at your life and what you're adding to other people's lives if you're making those things. Uh, and it's like food, right? So food is really addictive. The withdrawal symptoms from food are, are terrible. If you stop eating, you know, I understand you die. But um, and some food is wonderful and it, it um, enriches people's lives. But at the same time, if what you are doing is making deliberately empty calorie heavy stuff with perfectly optimized mouthfeel um, that doesn't allow people to feel full so they insist on the bag of it the moment they've stopped then again probably there's something hinky going on there I, I think it gets it gets really tricky when one person's uh, skinner box is another's uh, delightful hobby. Uh, that's, you know, that's, it's, it's so difficult to draw that. I always feel like I'm, I'm sort of being snobbish, right? When you look at someone who's like gotten really sucked into what appears to be like a mediocre mobile game. And it's like, oh, silly person. Like, don't you, don't you understand what, what these, what these companies are doing to you? Don't you understand the ways you're being manipulated? Well, off to play some more Total Warhammer. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing is people learn, right? So this is yes. the reason that Zynga is, is no longer dominating the landscape, is that actually people are not fundamentally stupid. And if you keep putting the same stuff in front of them, using the same empty mechanisms, they catch on. A lot of the more successful um, social games companies now are talking in terms of regulars rather than whales. They're talking in terms of actually trying to create gameplay and elder games and all, all the rest of it. All right. Our next email comes from Anthony from Michigan. Hello, Weekenders. After opening and closing Stardew Valley several times this weekend without actually playing it, I've come to the realization why. I'm afraid of burning out on this beautiful game that harkens back to the days of playing N64 in the basement. 
Besides the nostalgia factor, I do not want to become sick of the routine and the characters that inhabit that small town. This brings me to ask you the following question. Have you ever had a game that you loved so much, but refused to finish it for any reason? Oh, yes. Although, okay, this isn't a game, but it, this question is so near and dear to my little heart that I, I have to explain this. So Farscape is my favorite. Uh, it's my favorite piece of entertainment. I'm concerned about in the where universe. this is going, Danielle. Oh, you're going to be very mad with me. Um, it is my favorite thing. It is my like game, TV show, movie, all of it. I truly love it. Like I love it more than most things that exist in reality. I have never finished the miniseries that ends the show because of exactly this feeling of like, I don't want it to be over. It can't be over. It has to be like, I know this is the most childish (laughs) instinct in the universe. And I kind of, I've kind of been spoiled on everything that happens in it. You know, the, the miniseries, God, it, it showed like 12 years ago. So like I've, I've heard things about kind of what happens in it. And, uh, for those who don't know, Farscape is a TV series that ran from 1999 to 2003. And it was sort of cut short. It's last season. It's sort of, you know, fifth season that it was planned for, uh, got cut by sci-fi before sci-fi made good decisions like they do lately with things like the expanse. And, um, <laughs> it had this sort of mini series that was supposed to tie everything up. Uh, or at, at least attempt to as much as possible, like a four hour miniseries. And yeah, I haven't finished it yet. I was going to, I had planned to do so on another rewatching of Farscape. Like I, every few years I go through the whole thing again. I watch all of the 88 episodes in order. And, you know, I usually do this when I'm like taking someone else on a journey. I'm like, Oh, you've never watched Farscape here. Let me show you. Let me shepherd you through this beautiful world. And, you know, we skip the episodes that I know are kind of crappy and I give them the, the perfect Farscape experience, you know, TM. I, I think it's a, the perfect experience. Um, and so I had, I had been planning on my last rewatch of the series to, to go all the way to do it, you know, preparing myself, like the hanky in tow, but it just, it kind of never happened. So still to this day, I have never finished watching Farscape, even though I've watched 90% of the series multiple times. And it's my favorite thing in the universe. I I endorse Danielle's love of Farscape. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, I knew I liked you. Farscape fan. (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as you've gone, but I think I I would describe it as a, uh, a, a work of goddamn genius and um <laughs> i think you know people's reaction when they watch farscape the first uh episode is like but it's got fucking muppets in yep. it seriously <laughs> and then after that you're like it's got fucking muppets in that's yep. amazing because yes. actually yes. get things that more or less look like alien creatures and and the obviously the variety of enthusiasm. anyway uh, i've never failed to finish anything because i i'm a glutton <laughs> That's okay. also fair. I um, I do this a lot, actually. Like, okay, so I really like Hamilton. Haven't brought myself to listen to the third act. Oh. Uh, like, I've gotten to um, after there's a major death, and he and his family have moved to, uh, like, northern Manhattan. Uh, they moved uptown. Um. But it's like, I, I know what's coming and I hesitate over it. Um, I, I guess I, I tend to, I, I tend to get really hung up on, on like, uh, 
almost just like leaving characters in a good place and walking away. Yeah. Um, I remember for a long time, uh, Dennis Lehane, uh, is one of sort of my fate, one of my favorite, like hard boiled detective fiction authors, um, would not write another mystery starring the two characters that sort of launched his career, uh, Patrick Kenzie and uh, Angie Genero, uh, who are these two PI partners who were the stars of the series. And the thing he said uh, years later after years of hiatus from those characters was like, he just couldn't bring himself to fuck up their lives again. Um, and so there were sort of threads left dangling that he just didn't want to go and pick up again. Uh, because it meant, you know, sort of inflicting another hellish adventure on those characters. So he left them. Uh, and eventually he did, but, but I've always identified with that, that notion of this world is in a good place and it's not over. And I kind of want to leave it there. I do that less in games. Games, usually when I don't finish them, it's because I have gotten bored rather than I want to sort of leave them in an ideal place. But I always hesitate over starting the last night of The Last Express because I'm like, uh. okay, this is the part where the game fundamentally shifts and a lot of things happen that you wish did not. Um, but yeah, I always, I always struggle with uh, seeing universes and cast of characters that I've really come to enjoy, seeing them to their end. Uh, and, and maybe that is, again, that sort of like that, that, that fear of death, right? The, the, the unwillingness to confront the final and, and the irrevocability of life. Uh, but to an extent, it's also just a dread of, um, well, I guess this is just death by another name, but like decline. Like I was always, I, I was always terrified to start the next season of Mad Men. Because I always felt the last season ended so perfectly. It couldn't possibly get better from this. And I'd have to like hesitate ages before continuing the story because I was like, eh, from this point it's just gonna become formulaic TV drama. It didn't, but I was I was always worried about it. I feel like I've gotten worse about this than I used to be because of Battlestar Galactica. Because of the final episode mm. of Battlestar Galactica. Like, I'm actually afraid of loving something so much and then having it just just fall apart in my hands at the very end. Like, like you can be brutal. You can you can break my heart. TV series or game or whatever. You know, I, I get attached to characters. I think no. we, we all do, you know, to some degree. And, and I know we do. Uh, Rob and I, we, we certainly do. But. You can break my heart and I'm fine with it. But if you end on just a sour note, like if you just, if you leave a bad taste in my mouth, I am going to be so irrationally upset <laughs> for and so long. And the next long. thing you know, you're writing death threats to David Gator and yep. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am such an entitled fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Twin Peaks. Twin yeah. Peaks. Oh. Twin Peaks again. You get you get part of the way through the second season, and you're like, "When am I going to stop?" Because I don't want to watch to the very end. But and it's always shorter than you remember. Oh, it's it's so difficult. I really I really feel like there's something there to be like you just you get attached, and oh god, well, it, there's it also must be certain, so difficult. Yeah, go there's ahead. Some go mysteries ahead. you just don't want resolved. Like you know, to to give an example from Alexis's work, like. I remember my girlfriend and I were playing, uh, we, we were playing Sun the Sea at the same time. 
and we'd gone in some different directions. And she was like, so have you done the entire Dawn Machine quest line yet? And I was like, wait, there's a quest line around it? I thought it was just a weird thing. And she's like, no, I found it. It's a thing. And she started to explain. And I was like, I don't want to know. <laughs> and more than that, I didn't even want to do the quest line. Because to an extent, the Dawn Machine was such a weird thing that existed in this universe. It was this, it was this mystery out there. Um, and I almost didn't want to hear an explanation. I just wanted it to be this other profoundly disturbing and strange thing that you came across in that game. And like, sometimes I hesitate over that too. Like this idea that, Oh, there's some questions I just don't want answered. Uh, there's some things that I prefer to leave as, um, sensations and experiences, but I don't ever want to know their cause. I think, so I'm really glad you like the door machine. I think a lot of the credit for that goes to Paul's amazing art treatment. And I've seen, I don't know how many YouTube videos people just, just, it comes on screen and they go, nope. <laughs> no, right about to go back. And my number one world building adage has always been, you don't always have to give the answer, but you always have to have the answer. Even if you change the answer later, um, you know, you can quietly retcon something if nobody's uh, seen any evidence that, that contradicts it. <laughs> Uh, if you have the answer, uh, people can tell the difference if you're just making shit up. And they get better and better at telling the difference every year. So I think with that, it's time for us to go into our weekend project. So, Alexis, you being our guest of honor, is there anything you're reading or listening to or watching that you'd like to share that's uh, something that's been on your mind lately? Yeah, I'm, I'm late to the party. Um, but uh, I found Arch is really good. Oh, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, I, I know for years it's supposed to be quite funny, but, um, but my other half and I sat down to, to binge once chunks of it and, and, oh my God, every line. And, and they're having a hard time keeping the balloon high. And I, with the conversation we just had about things falling off later, I don't know how, how long they'll sustain it. But, um, yeah, all the things people have been saying about it for years, um, were, uh, were true, uh, and I, uh, I just the, the thing I'm doing game wise. I am a um, massive VR skeptic, um, business wise. Um, I I don't think it's it's ready for uh, mass consumer adoption. I think that you know you can't pass a, a, a headset to somebody else. You can't uh, get the same thing out of somebody watching the game. I think most of the VR games that exist now are less compelling than most of the other games. And I think, you know, AR will be where it's at. But I just bought a, um, a Vive, um, with some of my, um, Valverde money and, um, watching my six year old use tilt brush to paint <laughs> things in VR yeah. is the second most heartwarming thing I've ever seen. The most heartwarming scene, thing I've ever seen is putting my, um, six year old inside the undersea um, immersive scene <laughs> and watch uh, poke seeing enemies with the controllers. Oh my god! I put her in the um, in the really frightening one. The, the there's a, an underwater immersive scene that's at the bottom of a sea um, in the bones of a whale, uh, oh. and she uh, she spent five seconds being very excited and then immediately said, "I don't want to do this anymore. Please take the helmet off." Oh, <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> 
Oh, God, that's amazing. You're in very good company, too, I think, with uh, VR skepticism. I think we both are, are, are healthy skeptics uh, of VR. Although there have been a couple, it, I, I have to say, not as heartwarming, nearly as heartwarming as that, but uh, a couple of things I've done lately that have been really quite exciting, and I'm like, okay, one day this will, this will be incredible. Uh, so, Rob, tell me, what is setting your world on fire right now? This did not set my world on fire at all, but last night, uh, in, in the midst of, uh, watching, uh, so I'm back in Boston this week. Um, and I guess being honest, that's, that's what's setting my world on fire. I, I love being home. Uh, I love being in a place with weather again. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's been a pretty wonderful week. Uh, but my housemate and I made a very unfortunate decision ages ago to, uh, watch, um, what we view as like the essential Nicolas Cage movies. Uh, of which there are many. Um, yes. yes. In the essential movies and, and an arguably inessential career. Uh, <laughs> so last night we came to Con Air. Oh, God. And was, was that an essential one? I thought it was. I have okay. revised that opinion. Uh, Con Air is not <laughs> essential. Uh, it's, it's actually a profoundly inept uh, action movie uh, to the point where it's like, it's such a good concept. Like, it's got so many good actors in it. And it's such a, it's such a travesty, uh, to, to watch. It was, it was a very, it was a very, uh, great bummer of an experience, uh, but still, but still interesting to compare it to a work of real action movie genius like The Rock, uh, yes. and then see how, you know, in a lesser director's hands, uh, you, you end up with, with, with a vastly inferior film. The thing I'm actually into, uh, this week is, I picked up the um the trade paperback for um The Vision uh which is about the Avenger uh Vision and it's the uh it's it's the story run done by Tom King and uh illustrated by uh Gabriel Hernandez Walta. Um have you been have you followed this at all? Uh I mean I'm familiar with those the writer and the artist but I've not really been following this Vision it's uh it is a dark suburban horror story perfect um it is just it is on the art uh the writing both are very dense and profoundly unsettling uh so the vision is about uh vision creates himself a family uh he huh. creates himself a wife and a twin uh son and daughter and he moves to the suburbs and he just wants to be normal he just wants to live a normal american life but he's a robot basically he's he's, he's sort of a magic <laughs> robot uh if you've seen the avengers 2 that's basically his his origin story yeah. uh he's he's an ai given given form and the entire thing is done with this omniscient narrator who knows what's going to happen. And so from like the, the, the second or third page, um, you know that profoundly awful things are going to happen and disaster is going to follow this family and everyone they encounter. Uh, and like people are going to die and it's just told with that knowledge hanging over it. And then you sort of try to follow, um, their, their life in the suburbs and there are elements of comedy to it, but really it is sort of a study of 
an unsuccessful marriage, um, you know, alienation from, you know, from your, from, from your neighbors, like not, not knowing your place in the world, uh, alienation from, from like, from your profession. Uh, it is, you know, it, it, it is sort of a, uh, fable about a lot of, sort of the nightmares that lurk at the corners of the American dream. Uh, and it's a very well done one. Uh, so strong recommendation there. It is, uh, it is, it is a fascinating work. Oh my God. Okay. I need to, I definitely need to pick that up. So the book, you, the, the book you've right been looking for, the book you've been looking for is, uh, it's the, it's the first trade they made out of it. It's the vision, uh, little worse than a man. The vision, little worse than a man. Perfect. Okay. So I have, I could tell you about this like really fascinating uh, historical uh, book that I'm reading about uh, the Chinese treasure fleets of the 1420s. Yeah, I could tell you about that. Okay. I could tell you about that, and I will at some point. But right now, I'm going to tell you about an entirely different uh, Chinese-inspired thing that a uh, friend of the show, Amanda Cosmos, exposed me to uh, last night. Mm-hmm. It is called Thunderbolt Fantasy. And it is basically like an anime series, but instead of anime, you know, traditional animation, it is a puppet show with incredibly detailed, incredibly well, uh, well dressed puppets, uh, in a sort of like demon dimension historical China. And they have a lot of sword fights and they have a lot of, uh, sort of days of our lives style drama. And it is, God, I, I, I have a lot of feelings about it. Watched one episode last night and I couldn't stop being utterly fascinated by this, partially because I've always been really interested in sort of how tactile and interesting and weird puppets are. You know, we talked about this like a tiny, tiny bit with, uh, with Farscape, but like they're so weird. They're, they're physical, you know, physical, they're not creatures obviously, but they look like physical creatures and they're bizarre and the things you can do with lighting and sort of theatrical theatrical lighting and staging and so on and so forth is really fascinating and weird and very unsettling in a certain way, especially when it's sort of like anime style stuff with sword fights and special effects and goofy stuff going on. I mean, it, it just it looks like a fever dream. It looks like a beautiful, weird, bizarre, uh, somewhat unsettling fever dream. And I, I think I love it. I think I love it. Although it also kind of uh, freaks me out a little bit. Uh, so I'm just dipping my toe into this wider world, uh, hosted by Amanda. And she's, she's sort of guiding me through this, this beautiful world of anime and, uh, and Thunderbolt fantasy. I, uh, okay, that- can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, as, as long as it doesn't start cropping up in my timeline in, in repeatedly weird and increasingly disturbing uh, sexualized ways, then we're all good. I think it might, actually. Th- I've started Great. seeing people tweeting about it. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. What excellent news. Oh, on that beautiful note, on that very hopeful note, uh, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you are enjoying the show, please do take a, a moment, if you can, and uh, think about writing us a quick review on iTunes or telling your friends. It means the world to us. Thank you so much for doing so. And thank you all always for writing such wonderful, wonderful letters. 
And a huge, huge thank you to Alexis Kennedy for being here with us today. Uh, that was one of the most fascinating and in-depth and just really, really interesting and, and great interviews I've ever been, uh, I've ever had the pleasure of, of being a part of. So thank you so much, Alexis. Uh, and also, of course, good luck with, uh, with all the, the greater things you are going on to. Very, very excited do to I see have, Do that. I have 15 seconds to plug my own game? Yeah. Please, please do. Please do. Uh, uh, Google Alexis Kennedy cultist simulator. There's a prototype for up. That's fantastic. I am excited to play your cultist simulator. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney and special guest Alexis Kennedy, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Yeah, that was a good one. That was Alexis fun. was amazing. Yes. He was incredible. Yes, uh, he yeah. was.